All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, we'll be in verses 1 through 4 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I want you to walk away with. It's this, as signified and sealed in our baptism, our justification in Christ frees us to walk in newness of life according to God's grace. Let me say that again. As signified and sealed in our baptism, our justification in Christ frees us to walk in newness of life according to God's grace. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step back into Romans, let's remember the, who he's talking to here, right? He's, he's talking to a church that had divided. They had significant unity issues. Remember, on one side were the Jewish Christians who had essentially planted the church, probably out of Pentecost. They were Jews who had come to know Christ in and through the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And so they had done such a good job of evangelizing and doing what they were called to do and sharing this good news that they had been given that a number of Gentile, uh, Gentiles came into the church and became Christians. And remember, the word Gentile is, just means everybody who's not a Jew. So that would be every other ethnicity. So this would have been a beautifully diverse church given uh, what was going on in Rome. Remember, when Rome would conquer people, it would break them up so that they couldn't all aggregate together and, and kind of cast them all over the place. So you'd have had a number, of dish, a, a number of nationalities represented in Rome, and so this church would have been made up of people from all over, right? And remember, the Jews, uh, Jewish Christians, were kicked out by one of the mayors of Rome for a season, and the new Gentile Christians took over the church. Well, they took that as opportunity to say, hey, we're the new kids on the block. The Lord has placed his favor upon us. Well, in God's providence, the Jewish Christians were allowed to return. They said, hey, thank you for keeping the fire warm. We'll take back over now, because do remember, we are the oldest loved of God, and we have the covenant and the law and everything else. You have us, and we don't need you. And so that was kind of the posture and the stance. And so Paul was stepping into this to try to help unify them and, and show them the places where they were unified. And remember, uh, in, in the first three chapters, they were unified by virtue of their sin. They were all equally broken. They were all equally distant from God, right? And remember, he made it clear to them, even though you had the law, Jewish Christians, you failed to live it out. In fact, you're as bad as they are. And so you need redemption. It takes Christ to redeem you all. So you're unified in your, in your brokenness, in your sin. You're unified in your need for a Savior, which is Jesus. And you're unified in having been saved by Christ. Remember, it's by faith alone, through God's grace alone, and Christ alone. That is absolutely across the board the same for every tongue, tribe, and nation. 
And so as we come to chapter 6, he's going to not put away the discussion of justification, but bring it forward to help us see how we are to mature, or the fancy theological term is sanctification, be sanctified, grow more like Jesus. And so he here uses baptism as a key means by which to help them understand that and us as well. But before we get to that, let me ask you a question. What do you think of those who make religious excuses for their bad behavior? Isn't this some of the most obnoxious uh, stuff that happens in our world today when people say, well, the Bible allows me to have slaves, as the church once argued in America, right? They, they, they had a, a, a theology that they argued allowed them to treat an entire group of people as subhuman. It was a deeply cultivated theology, and it allowed them to mistreat folks Monday through, well, Sunday, let's be honest, and then go to church as if they were the redeemed of God. We also have done this in terms of how, uh, how women have been abused, children have been abused. There have been theological justifications, the twisting of God's word to accomplish those things. And any host of things that we could bring up, and just so we're not pointing fingers at someone else, let us recognize this tendency in our own heart. How often have you said something to the effect of, well, the devil made me do it? Or, along with Lady Gaga, I was born this way, right? I was born this way, and so therefore, what I desire, you cannot challenge. What I wish to be, you cannot say is wrong, right? And so, there are some ways in which we are all guilty of this, and we all twist God's word, or we have a religious excuse for our bad behavior, this is what Paul is afraid of, that the, the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians are going to hear what he said at the end of chapter 5 and use that as an opportunity to sin so that grace may abound. So it would be helpful to us. Let me go back and read the end of chapter 5 just so we have context. Remember, he was talking about the, the, where Adam and Jesus are similar and then more importantly where they are dissimilar because Christ brings life and, and he brings righteousness and justification. But picking it up in verse 20, he says, Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. That just means the law is to expose sin so that you know where you're uh, unlike God, unlike Jesus. And he goes on, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's essentially saying that, that grace is far more powerful and persistent than sin and death are. Now, why is that important? Well, that's critical. You, you cannot be redeemed if that is not true because we have all sinned. And what are the wages of sin? Death. And if the wages of sin are death and that, that wage never changes, you can't, that is a reality that cannot be changed that is a fact, then we have to have something that's stronger than sin, stronger than death in order to be redeemed. Well, we do. It's Jesus, through God's grace, who redeems us. He's far more persistent than our sin ever was, and praise be to God. But that doesn't mean that he saves everyone. 
And we're going to hear more about that as we go along through Romans. This is not a universal declaration. And what he's not saying, he's going to get to, is that grace benefits because of sin. Right? So he's anticipating something that they would think in their minds. So you had one group of people, probably the Jewish Christians, who would have taken this as law. Okay, that's a law. Right? Sin, uh, if there's sin going on, then grace abounds. And if we want to glorify God, the best way to do that, the fastest way to do that, the shortest cut to that is to sin. So why don't we eat, drink, and be merry? And then you had the other group of people, probably the Gentile Christians, who would have said, oh man, this is great. This, we call this licentiousness. That means that you can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want, and there's no consequence, right? So, so is Paul saying that? Is he saying there's no consequence for sin since it makes grace to abound? Well, no. You've got to be careful because there's a strain of cheap grace that continues to permeate modern evangelicalism. As if to suggest our sin doesn't matter, and even, even more devastating, that our obedience is of no consequence. And so, Paul wants to make sure they understand in the strongest of terms that is not what's going on here. In fact, in the Greek, when he says by no means, he's essentially yelling. He's saying, no, that is not how it works. Now, this is where we got to be careful. We could point to this and say, well, those, those guys just didn't know. No, we do this. We have to recognize that in our own hearts, the, the tendency to, to want to help God via the shortest path possible, via the, the thing that, let's be honest, costs us the least. And so we need to think about this for a second as we go through this, because he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, is he talking about being perfect here? Absolutely not. And, and he makes that clear in a number of other places. He's asking kind of a larger, uh, a more metaphysical type question, right? A larger abstract type question. He's saying essentially that if, if your sin has been dealt with, which he says it has in the next, he says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So consider what he's saying. He's saying if the wages of sin are death, and that's a fixed reality, and you have been delivered from death, you have been delivered from the power of your sin, then why would you think that God would do that in order for you to just go back like a dog to your own vomit to the way you lived previously? Why would he do something that would require the re-sacrificing of Christ or someone greater so that you would not have to pay the wage for the thing that you will do on any given day and every given day of the week. This is one of the things that's a key warning in the book of Hebrews. For those of you who know those passages that, that are kind of fearsome, you know, Hebrews chapter 6, where it says, you who go back over the elementary things, you crucify Christ again to an open shame. Or, chapter 10 is even worse, if you, if you essentially sin with a high hand, you are trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. And if you should die on the testimony of two witnesses, how much greater on the testimony of the blood of Christ? So he's essentially saying, what greater Superman do you think is coming? If you declare that Jesus is insufficient for your redemption, 
based on who he is and what he has done, who greater do you think is coming? Right? And so you haven't been set free to then return to your old behavior and continue to do things that are going to cost you your life. You have been set free for something. And here, I think, is our fundamental problem. We, just like the Jews, uh, Jewish Christians then, and just like the Gentile Christians then, we asked the wrong question. We essentially live the Christian life, if we're not careful, with this mindset. What's the absolute minimum I got to do to get in? What's the minimum? Because if, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Uh, if, if we're all getting into heaven, if, 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 if the prostitute that washed the feet of Jesus, she got to do all that wild living, she gets to get into heaven. The prodigal son got to go and live riotously. He gets to get into heaven. Well, then shouldn't I get to live a little? Shouldn't I? What's the minimum? What does it take to get in? Is that the right question for us to be asking? Well, no, and the reason is there is no minimum. There is nothing for you to do to get in because Christ has done it. This is the beauty of justification by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone. And so too often we're just wanting to know what's the minimum to kind of stay in the realm so as not to get sent to China or get sent to Iran as a missionary. Right, as if we're that, like God's like, man, Cameron would be a real superstar if he would just read his Bible every day. But since he doesn't, I got to leave him in Kennesaw, you know, and eat good food and drink good drinks and suffer for Jesus instead of sending him to Iran where I could really use him. Or we're just trying to get the most we can out of this life uh, thinking that that is where life is to be found in the things that are passing, in the temporary things, and the things that are dying. So the question is not what is the minimum. It's not what do we have to do, right? Because did God have to save us? No, he didn't have to, but he chose to. How do I know this to be true? Well, if we could have a panel of the people from the flood who God wiped out in Genesis 6 through 9, did he save them? No. He didn't have to. And he doesn't have to. That's because he chooses. If his, his love is an issue of choice, his mercy is something that is bestowed upon us. It is a gift. If he had to do it, then it wouldn't be a gift. It wouldn't be grace. But he, but he chooses to, and because he chooses to, because he could, he could just leave us, all right, just enjoy your existence between the now and the not yet. Why, why does he see fit to make us righteous? Why does he see fit to not only justify us, but sanctify us in the power of the Holy Spirit in and through the person and work of Christ, who makes intercession for us? Well, because he's inviting us into something. It's not about what we have to do. It's about what we get to do. You have been given newness of life. 
This isn't just about being set free from the, the, the forensic or the legal aspect of your sin. See, that's why that view of justification is so devastating to us. Justification is not just for you to be declared not guilty. It is for you to be declared heir, son or daughter of the God most high and be given access to all of the heavenly blessings. It is for you to be made a child of God. And too often we only view our justification in a forensic or legalistic way. We only look at it as, I have been declared not guilty. That is, that is uh, uh, short shrift, as we like to say. That is to not actually benefit from the fullness of what Christ has done for you. And further, to not cultivate it, this is the obedience and sanctification part, to not cultivate so great a gift is its own problem. Right? To not go into and, and want to grow in how deeply God loves us and what he has given to us and then share that in hospitality with other people is devastating to us. So we've got to work on that mindset that says or suggests, and this is where we're doing our children a real disservice, for us to pass on to the next generations this this idea that you, you don't get to do this, you have to do this. Now, many of the kids in here are like saying, my parents didn't give me a choice to come to church this morning, Doc. Like, they, they said I had to. So can you talk to them? Like, it sounds like you're talking to them. But see, this is the problem when we don't give a more robust understanding of what the Christian life is and means. Too often for our children, all we've given them is some sort of moralistic set of, of barriers that is not life more abundant. It doesn't sound anything like what Paul is talking about here. Is it walking in newness of life to, to, to not do certain things? Don't punch your sister, which you shouldn't do, by the way, under any circumstances. Don't punch your brother, which you shouldn't do, really, under most circumstances. And so, is that all that it is? Be a good boy or girl. When what courses through their veins, and you know, those of you who have multiple children, each of them displays the fall uniquely and imaginatively. And so, if you don't help them to see that this is about newness of life, we are failing in our mission. And so for too many of us, we don't know that. So we're having a hard time passing on what we don't know. Because we're not accessing our justification. Our justification is something we never think about. You need to. And this is where Paul invokes baptism to help them. This means of grace that the Lord has given to them, he speaks to them and he reminds them, you are baptized. And that means something. And that should help you remember who and whose you are. And notice what he goes on to. He says, we have been buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, might walk means that there's some dependency the question is, will you? It's not guaranteed that you will. 
It's not guaranteed that you will benefit from your baptism. It's not guaranteed that you will benefit from the resurrection of Christ. Though you've already benefited from your justification, your sanctification, you must participate in. The more weakly you participate in it, the weaker the result you're going to get like any good gardener. But you don't, you don't do that in your own strength. Like any good gardener, you recognize you can put the seed out and you can water, but the Lord must give the increase. And Paul's going to get into that in Romans chapter 8 when he says you have to walk in the Spirit. You can't do this on your own, but you must take up the means of grace. And baptism is one of those means. And so baptism helps to point us to that we are justified in the death of Christ. And it helps us point, point us to that we get to walk in newness of life. And if that's the place where you're wrestling, you need to wrestle. You can admit and say, man, much of the Christian stuff, it's just boring. And I don't get much out of it. Like for many of you, whenever you hear improve upon your baptism, that doesn't exactly cause the hair on the back of your neck to stand up in a good way. Just because you witness someone else being baptized doesn't mean you'll shed a tear. It doesn't mean you'll feel anything. This is where we got to be careful that we don't import ourselves as the arbiters of truth. How you feel about something doesn't dictate its truth. Now, I've been reading Jonathan Edwards' The Religious Affections, and he spends the whole first part of the book making sure that that is clearly understood. There's a whole host of things that, that make no impact whatsoever on whether or not something is true. How you feel about it is one of those things. For instance, how many of you are absolutely certain that Georgia will finally vanquish the beast on January 10th? How many of you feel that they're not going to? Absolutely not. And you will be just, in fact, that's the worst thing that can happen is there's so many who feel a certain way and when it happens, it further justifies. See, I knew it. I knew it. They're trash. They're always going to be trash, right? But that, your feeling had nothing to do with it. The Braves won the World Series. I had all kinds of feelings. It had no impact whatsoever on how it played out. But praise be to God. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I can give thanks. I've been a Braves fan for a long time. I was there when there was like 4,000 people, and they made me. This is the strangest thing. You get tickets for being a straight-A student. There's 4,000 people at this game, and they have like 10 of the biggest security guards to make sure that you as a straight-A student do not come any closer to the worst game you're ever going to see in your life, that you stay in the nosebleed seats, right? That's kind of how we treat our Christianity. That we've been invited to the worst possible game with the worst possible seats. And we just got to endure it and hope that it means something someday. Is that what Paul's talking about here? No, he's talking about newness of life. He's talking about the resurrection from the dead. He is talking about our being able to be pleasing to the Lord. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to the things that have been uh, just tearing us apart. You may say, yes, but I still struggle. And you may even be thinking, wait till we get to Romans chapter 7, Cameron, because Paul's going to say he struggled. Well, he can't be talking out of both sides of his mouth. He's talking about that struggle in a very unique way that you can't struggle using the law. But he is saying that you must struggle well using the Spirit. 
that has been imputed to you because of Christ's righteousness and his justification. And so it's critical that we recognize how our baptisms affect us. And many of you may be thinking, see, I knew that, that, that Cameron was a Baptist deep down. No, but he's not talking to infants here because that doesn't often go over very well, as you may recognize. He's talking to adults who are failing to be unified in one of the things that should have unified them. And he's making it very clear their baptism is not about them. It's not about the decision they made. It's about the decision God made. That's why we can say we would want to use that sacrament as a means of grace to any child given to us to raise in the admonition of the Lord. We want them to know the sign that they've been entrusted to us, the church, to disciple. And in the same way, for those of you who are in faith, we want you to know both the sign and the seal so that you would grow as a disciple because of your baptism. Now, Westminster Larger Catechism Question 167 is very helpful to us in this regard. It's why I've given it to you. It's in your bulletin. I would encourage you to go through this sometime later this week prayerfully, but I want to I take just a moment to help us practically think through how do we improve upon our baptisms, as Paul is challenging them to do. He's also challenging us to do. Now, the answer to the question is the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism. Let me just pause right here. It was a problem in the mid-1500s. It's still a problem today. You neglect your own baptism. I have neglected mine. And we, the church, too often don't speak to you as baptized ones. We don't often, as the church, make much use as a means of grace of your baptism when counseling you or seeking to encourage you. We should. And forgive us for not having done better to, to now. But it was a problem back then too. And he goes on to say that it is to be performed by us all our life long. So our baptism is something that is to be formative to who we are over the whole of our lives. So how does that happen if we don't ever return to it? How does that happen if we don't in any way, shape, or form take up what it signifies and seals? Now, that language, just for those of you who may be wondering, to signify something is just to represent. So uh, in the baptism itself, it signifies us being put to death with Christ and being raised to newness of life. It seals. How does it work as a seal? Well, seal means imprint. Does it mean that the, the baptism itself saves you? It doesn't mean that anything magical happens because you are baptized. It's not a furthering of your salvation. No, it's a means of grace. The Spirit is at work in it, but it's essentially it has the imprint of Christ. It helps to further make you into the image of Jesus, to look like him, to bear his seal. And so, as he goes on, this is something we're to do lifelong. And then notice he gives a particular moment when I think it would be important for us to think about it, especially in the time of temptation. Now, Luther was known for doing this. Whenever Satan would assail him, he would say, remember your baptism, remember your baptism, remember you're baptized. He would cry out using his baptism. Now, what would this look like for us? How many of you... Uh, we'll make it rhetorical, we won't make it a, a broad confession, but how many of you struggle with anger? Uh, we have one brave soul, uh, but it was rhetorical. But like in the moment when you are wanting it, so why do we get angry all the way down? 
Well, because selfishly, we think the world revolves around us. And that my wife should not have, last night, placed the little stool in a place where it doesn't normally go so that I, in the dark, would kick it and take every name I could think of in vain. Right? I should have said, remember you're baptized, not curse everyone's lineage. But we all have anger issues because of pride, because we don't like to be inconvenienced, because we want people to read our minds in the dark. We, we want, it's all about us. So in the moment when anger rises, or even better, you anticipating when anger might really be an issue for you, like me, when you get behind the wheel of a car. I even do it as a passenger. Susan can testify to this. And so, and so it would be wise for me when I get behind the wheel of a car to remember my baptism. Now you may th- say, that's hokey. No, it is not. Not at all. It's good for me to remember that I cost Christ, and he did not in anger smite me. He, in love and mercy and grace, redeemed me and justified me so that I could walk in newness of life and not return over and over and over again like a dog to my own vomit. Those of you who have problems when you get on a computer or a device of any kind, might it be helpful for you to remember your baptism? Remember that you have been set free for greater. That before you say, I just can't help myself. Yes, you can, if you are redeemed. Now, if your true testimony is you can't help yourself, well, then you may not be redeemed, actually. And that's not a bad confession if you act on it and cry out to the Lord and become redeemed through faith. It's a terrible confession of those who are redeemed because it's an excuse that you are making that doesn't have to be so. Why? Because you've been set free. You are no longer a slave to that thing. Remember your baptism. In other places, you ought to remember your baptism in terms of hospitality because you walk in newness of life. In terms of being able to speak an encouraging word, to show kindness, you can actually live in such a way that benefits the people around you because of what Christ has done for you. Remember your baptism. And he goes on to say, and we should also improve upon our baptism when we, pr- we are present at the administration of baptism of others. That's why we send out the preparatory letter for you before we baptize someone. So that's always a good opportunity to remember what Christ has done for us. And remember, we're not talking about the event. We're not talking about the mode. We're not talking about any of those things. We're talking about what Christ has done. When we say, remember your baptism, we're saying, remember what Jesus has done for you. Not the event, not the specifics per se, but more importantly, what it points to, which is Jesus. And too often, we don't have things that cause us to do that, if we're honest, right? Let's be honest. This last week, how many times were you provoked to think about Jesus? Without something provoking you, whether you were reading the word or you you were listening to some praise music or something of that nature. This is where your baptism can be helpful to you. It provokes us to think about Jesus. And he goes on, and he says, 
by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of our baptism and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein. So he's just saying you need to think through all of what your baptism signified and what it seals, and now what does it afford you? We should give thanks as baptized ones. We should give thanks to the Lord that because of what Christ has done for us, that our baptism represents that and can be used as a means of grace to benefit us. But it has to be considered. And I love this. And considering our baptism, we should be humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism and our engagements. Because of the grace of Christ, when we consider our baptism, you don't only consider it when you're doing well. It's good to remember it after you have messed up. To remind yourself, you are baptized, so you know which way to run. Only the baptized, or, uh, the, those that have been redeemed in Christ, can run to the throne of grace. What it signifies and seals. And so this is where you need to be reminded of that, right? Because after you sin, which way do you want to run? Away. But because you're baptized, you get to run too to be reminded of who and whose you are and to have the, 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 the glorious pronouncement of God's forgiveness yet again spoken over you. And he goes on. And uh, uh, the grace of baptism are engagements by, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in the sacrament by drawing strength from the death and the resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and, and the quickening of grace. That's Colossians chapter 3. If you want to mortify and vivify, remember your baptism. Use your baptism to help you do those things. If you are justified, you can mortify sin. You can put off. You can put to death. If you walk in newness of life, you can vivify beautifully the things of Christ. Amen? You have that power in you, and your baptism helps point you to it. Your baptism does not make it so. You see the difference? And he goes on. And by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those who have therein given up their names to Christ and walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into one body. There is one baptism according to Ephesians chapter 4, and we are unified in that one baptism. Now, don't get tangled up and go, yeah, but if, 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 if Matt was sprinkled and Susan was dunked and, and somebody over here was poured, is that... Is that one baptism? Yes. The mode is not the baptism. It's what it signifies. It's what it points to. And that's really important for us to remember. It doesn't matter who, the sinfulness of the person, because they're all sinful who baptized any and every one of you who are baptized, as long as they did it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it pointed to Jesus. That's what matters. We get too tangled up in all the other surrounding things and fail to benefit from the unifying and, and, and vivifying aspect of our baptism. This is what Paul wants us to understand. So my question for you is this, and do not be ashamed of the answer because it's a way forward, right? What ongoing role does your baptism play in your Christian life? For most of us, if we're honest, the answer is very little. That can change. You can be creative. You can write a prayer. 
of some kind, you can use this scripture. You can use Paul's words to create a prayer to help you remember your baptism. You can, you can be creative in finding other texts that speak to baptism and what Christ has done. Use those. Pray those. Create a space somewhere in your devotional life where your baptism gets remembered. Use it between each other. Help each other to remember you're baptized. One of the places that this often is very important is how many of you have ever experienced shame as a parent? All of us. And how often are you afraid to tell somebody else? Because you just think, arrogantly, you are the worst parent in the world. And you're afraid to let anybody else know. But here's where we could remind each other of our baptisms. And that it is not the end. And that our sin doesn't have the final say. And a thousand other places where it could be used. And so, how are you improving upon your baptism? By considering and applying the person and work of Christ. Your baptism has to matter on a Wednesday at 3 o'clock. It has to matter on a Saturday at 12. It is a means of grace. And so, just as Paul has encouraged us, I want to encourage all of us to grow in this way. And for those of you, parents, who have, your children have been baptized, understanding that it's a means of grace for the Spirit to use, remind them. Maybe they haven't made a profession of faith as of yet, but it is good to remind them of the benefits they could have from making that profession. Disciple them in their baptism. This is one of the places I think we do fail. We render the baptism of an infant of very little value if we do not use that baptism in their discipleship. Again, not the event, but what it points to. And you may say, well, but we tell them about Jesus all the time, right? Yes, but, but the Lord gave to the church two sacraments. Baptism is one of them. We should make use of it. Unfortunately, we have failed to do so, and my hand is raised the highest. And so what would that look like? To say to your children, remember your baptism. Remember, you're baptized if they are not yet redeemed. Well, it's to speak to them about what the death of Christ means, what it could mean for them, and why it was necessary, and what walking in the newness of life could be. Again, that's the place I think we're offering too little. We've made it about what we have to do and not what we get to do, and we're just not showing them very much. But we've got time and room to grow. Amen? And the Spirit is at work in us and among us to use our baptisms and theirs to that end. And so uh, Romans 6, 1 through 4 teaches us that as signified and sealed in our baptism, our justification in Christ frees us to walk in newness of life according to God's grace. You don't have to. You get to. You've been invited. And yes, many days it doesn't feel like it, but that's not what's important. What's important is what God has promised and sealed and done. And on the days where we are in phase and do feel it, praise be to God. But again, remember, truth is not incumbent upon your feelings. 